Today is October 5th, 2018, and we at MitoAction are thrilled to welcome Dr. McGuire to our Mito Expert presentation series. And I mean that. I know that your time is so valuable. You have your hands in so many areas doing such good work that we do appreciate um, you giving us your time. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm Mary Beth Hollinger, MitoAction's Director of Education Support and Advocacy. And these Friday either presentations or our support group are really the highlight of my week as well. So I learned so much from both the callers and especially the presenters. So thank you, thank you again. As a reminder, today's slides can be found at www.mitoaction.org slash mcguire-mito-immune. Or better yet, just go to mitoaction.org and under most recent news, Click on today's topic, which is Dr. Peter McGuire presents on mitochondrial disease and the immune system. Click view the slides in the box to the right of the screen. Again, I'm going to voice questions today, so if you have a question at any time during this recording, just email me, marybeth at mitoaction.org, and I'll be happy to voice the questions. Again, we'll keep things general because it is a recorded call today, so um, just I'm not going to go through like specific lab work or specifics about any person, but just in general questions. So um, again, I'm just so thrilled and honored to have you here, Dr. McGuire, to discuss the immune system. I was saying before, I get so many questions about the immune system, and we really have not explored this topic in our presentations as of yet. So I totally oh, appreciate great. that. And with, <laughs> you know, heading into cold and flu season and working out our immune system. Exactly. Extra hard. It's just a perfectly timely topic. So just to review just a second all that you have accomplished, and I'm always so daunted and honored to do this because I read all that you've done, and I am well aware of your research. I'm just like, wow, they've devoted their life to mitochondrial disease, and it's, it just warms my heart, and I know that all of the callers and families on this line feel the same, that they have somebody really pulling for them. So thank you, thank you in advance. But... Um, I see that you uh, graduated with honors from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, which is pretty cool. And then you went to do a residency in genetics at Mount Sinai, which is in New York City, which I'm sure was pretty prestigious. Um, and I, I can't imagine going from Ireland to New York City, but I'm <laughs> sure you got stories for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> quite different. The cultures are quite different. <laughs> yes. Yes. My mom visited Ireland once, and she came back. <laughs> absolutely loving it, being a, you know, an O'Keefe, so she was right in her own element <laughs> there. So um, you've also moved to the National Genome Research Institute and at the National Institute of Health, and that's how I sort of have tracked you since then. So, and you've just been there so long, you're tenured, they love you. Um, but the more important part is that you have really focused your career on really helping the patients with disorders of mitochondrial metabolism. And I commend anyone who goes into that because right now there's not been a whole lot of glory and, you know, not a lot of people even thinking about mitochondrial issues. So for you people who have really said, nope, I'm diving in here, you know, sink or swim, here we are, we so appreciate you. So just your training you. in immunology and the biochemical genetics, you've just brought that interplay between that mitochondrial metabolism and the immune system to the forefront as many of us know it should be because I bet if I took a show of hands or clicks or beeps or whatever we do on the phone, 
so many people would say, yes, my immune system is messed up, it's hyperactive, I have all these autoimmunes, or it's not able to fight off infections, or IVIG. I mean, we hear it all the time, so we so appreciate that. Um, and I'm most interested to hear about your um, mini-study and yes. all that you are doing as of late. So thank you, thank you for coming and sharing your expertise with us. Um, again, our our callers will advance their own slides, so okay. every now and then if you want to say, well, now I'm on slide 10, we're pretty good okay. at keeping up and orienting ourselves, so you don't sure. to, you know, take too much mind of what we're up to, but so appreciate it, and I will, I will hand it off to you. Okay, great. Thank you very much for that very humbling introduction. <laughs> um, so, um, so yes, I'm, so I'm a biochemical geneticist and I have a background in immunology. And um, I have to say what, what rings very true about some of the things that you said about people willing to go into mitochondrial disease, I think part of that is your, your devotion as a physician um, to this population, who, which is a very vulnerable population for many reasons. Um, but also, too, um, it should be said that the National Institutes of Health um, is a place where I can do this kind of work. Um, in other words, where I don't have to worry about, you know, funding mechanisms and things like that. So it really allows me to serve the patient population that I'm devoted to. Um, so today I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, um, our study. Um, that'll kind of come more at the end. But in the beginning, more about kind of the immune system and why it's important. And the reason that, you know, I kind of came up with this uh, uh, research program that I have here and the reason that we're devoted to patients with mitochondrial disease um, really has to do with uh, when I was training as a fellow um, in, in genetics and biochemical genetics. And, you know, you would get those calls in the middle of the night um, about patients who, who were coming to the hospital and they were very sick. And, you know, after doing this for quite some time, you kind of realize that, you know what, there really are no kind of standardized treatments for this. And um, there really needs to be kind of a, a, a new approach to how we think about illness and mitochondrial disease. Um, and to ask the basic question, you know, do patients with mitochondrial disease have some type of immune deficiency or immune dysfunction? So, in other words, how do they get to this point? And then once they actually have an infection, what's actually going on that kind of makes them deteriorate even further? So um, in the interest of beginning my talk and getting through my slides, um, I have no conflicts of interest to declare. Um, so the outline for today's talk um, is we're going to talk about the immune system and why it's important. And then um, a, a particular condition which I'm sure many of you are familiar with is infection um, and how it can be detrimental essentially in, in patients with mitochondrial disease. And then the third part, we'll talk about immune function um, in patients with mitochondrial disease and some of the things we're seeing in our patients or in our, our mouse models that we make and things like that. And that will lead into a, a kind of a short discussion of our, um, our mini-study and what we do. So, so why is the immune system important? I'm here on slide four, and basically it's because it helps protect us. Our bodies are assaulted every day at every moment by things in the environment, um, whether that's pollution, but a lot of it's infectious things um, like bacteria. I mean, our own guts are lined with billions of bacteria, which have to be kept in check, um, as well as viruses. Viruses are also in our gut, on our skin, in different areas of our bodies, which have to be kept in check, um, as well as fungus and parasites, and then cancer as well. Cancer um, are cells that grow out of control, and the immune system plays a critical role in kind of keeping those cells in check and keeping them from proliferating and turning into cancer. 
So to have a functional immune system, um, it, it basically it protects you against all these assaults which are happening as we speak on the phone right now. So the next slide shows the immune system, and, and basically there's multiple lines of defense in the immune system. So there are mechanical you know, barriers, there are chemical barriers. Um, so the mechanical barriers, as you, as you would think, is, are things like your skin and your mucous membranes. These are things that actually serve as a physical barrier um, to the various pathogens that, that basically can assault your body every day. There are also chemicals that are part of that, like acid in your stomach, um, which tends to help neutralize um, certain infectious organisms. Um, a second line of defense involves more aspects of the immune system itself um, and the cells involved in the immune system. So fever is a protective response, right? That's something that's controlled in your brain where you actually raise your core body temperature. And the idea is like turning, on, turning up the oven because certain bacteria and viruses don't like elevated heat. So that's the idea behind fever, that your body is trying to kill these things via heat. Um, and then the immune cells, um, such as you know, T cells and B cells, and you can see it says NK cells, um, they all perform certain functions. Um, so these are cells that move around in your blood throughout your body and enter certain organs and go back in the blood again, like traffic, basically. They traffic all over. And these are important for kind of keeping an eye on things and making sure that, um, that there are no infections that are being established. And if there are, then their job is to alert the other immune cells and your body as a whole that there's something going on or there's something that needs to be given attention. And then the third line of defense, so that's, that's kind of nonspecific immunity. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on whether it's a virus or a bacteria or anything like that. But the third line is specific immunity, which basically means that this is where immune memory comes in, where when you encounter an infection, hopefully you're protected against it next time. And this is the basis of vaccination. And it involves immune cells, so that means that's what cell-mediated means. But it also involves humoral components as well, and those are antibodies. So antibodies are basically um, part of the basis of vaccination. They are small proteins that float around in your blood, and they go up when you're vaccinated against something, say, for instance, like measles. And the idea is that those antibodies will protect you from getting measles. So in the immune system, if we go on to our next slide, um, basically the organs, um, it's composed of organs and cells, right? So there are many different immune organs, the tonsils. Everyone remembers the tonsils. Uh, we go back and forth in pediatrics, whether we're taking them out or we're not taking them out. Um, you know, I think at this point we only take them out if they're obstructing breathing in young kids. Um, but tonsils are basically immune organs. They are sites where immune cells that rise in the bone marrow circulate to and serve to basically um, survey any infections that may be going on in the oropharynx or the throat. Um, the thymus is a place where um, immune cells, uh, they go to school, they learn to grow up there, they learn to um, mature, um, to be able to recognize different pathogens that may affect the body. The highway system that, uh, that connects all of this is something known as the lymphatic system. So these are vessels that run all throughout your body, which the immune cells will use and travel through to get to different places. And then, of course, the spleen. The spleen is a, a, an organ that resides in your abdomen, um, which is important for disposing of things that circulate through your blood. It's like a filter, basically. So there are a lot of immune cells there to react to things that are filtering through your blood. 
So the other part are the cells of the immune system. So we normally call those white blood cells, and there are many different types. So when I say white blood cell, I might as well be saying car. Um, there are Mercedes, there are GMC, there are Fords, there are Lincolns. They're all different types, um, and they all share very similar characteristics. And these cells are important, basically, for protecting you against infection. These are the ones that actually do the work. So going on to our next slide, um, these many different types of cells all arise from the bone marrow. And this gives you an idea of kind of the multitude of cells that, the, that are produced out of the bone marrow that are important for um, the immune system to function. So at the very top, you can see things like macrophages. Um, those are cells that, that reside in tissues that are like they are basically like garbage collectors. They clean up, you know, junk in your tissues, including infections. Um, you have things like mast cells um, and basophils, which can be involved in um, allergy and, and um, other types of inflammatory reactions. You have neutrophils also, which are involved in inflammatory reactions. But when you move to the bottom, you have these very highly specialized cells, um, such as T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes and dendritic cells and natural killer cells. These are cells that are highly specialized in function, which help you um, basically eliminate infection or prevent infection from taking hold in the first place. And we're going to talk about T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes a little bit more as we, as we move along. So on our next slide, how does the body actually learn to defend ourselves? So we're on slide eight now, and it does it basically two ways, um, one of which is by natural infection. So in other words, um, you contract something, the immune system learns to respond to it, and then um, develops immunity against it. Um, the other way is by vaccination. So vaccination programs have been around for, you know, a very long time, and it seems like, you know, every few years the number of vaccinations that are being given does expand. Um, and um, it works pretty much the same way as natural infection. You are being exposed to a particular type of pathogen, or at least pieces of it, or whole inactivated forms of it, like viruses, for instance, and the body learns to recognize these things so that when they are encountered naturally, um, the immune system is poised and waiting and therefore um, trying to prevent that infection from taking place or taking hold within the body. So going on to our next slide, um, how does the immune system protect us? Um, this is the, these are the antibodies I was talking about before. So antibodies are proteins that float around in your blood, and they're produced by the B cells. So the B cells are the white blood cells that I mentioned. And what happens is when you are exposed to something, and here it says all the way to the left, primary antigen exposure, that means either a virus naturally acquired, like influenza or something like that, or even a vaccination you may get, like MMR, what happens is over the first 10 days or so, you get a rise in a certain type of antibody called IgM, which is there to kind of take care of this early stage of infection. But what's most important is that about 20 days or so, you see a rise in something called IgG. So this is part of what's called immunologic memory. So this IgG rises to help also clear this kind of primary infection that you have, but then it goes down. And by the way, the cells that are making this are B cells, and they follow very similar patterns. So the B cells that make IgM go up very similarly, and the B cells that make IgG go up very similarly. But then these things go down as the infection is cleared, 
Then secondary exposure, this can be months later, this can be weeks, you know, weeks, months, years later that you're actually exposed to this, an infection, which these antibodies are specific for, and you can see the responses for IgG is so much more robust. In other words, it goes up to levels that are much higher. The immune system's been waiting for this, right? Waiting to encounter this again. And in doing so, makes much higher levels of IgG, which then either prevents the infection from taking hold or leads to a much more attenuated version of the infection, so it's not as serious. And as I mentioned before, this is the basis for um, vaccination, and this is how we are protected against measles, mumps, rubella, varicella, and all the other things that we're vaccinated for. Okay. Well, as I said in the previous slide, if you go into the next slide, um, it turns out that there are cells that do this as well, and the, and the B cells are responsible for what are making antibodies, but they're also T cells. And T cells are important because they help kind of coordinate the immune response. So you can see on this slide, I have CD8 T cells. Those are important for killing viruses and curing virally infected cells. And then there are CD4 T cells. And CD4 T cells are important for kind of, they're like the ringmasters. They help coordinate their immune response as a whole. So you can see um, shortly after infection, within days of infection, these immune cells go up in number they help clear the infection, and then they undergo a contraction where they go down to a very basic level, and that's what immune memory is. That's what lasts the weeks, the months, the years um, that protect you against, like, much like the antibodies I showed you, protect you against things like viruses, invading viruses and other pathogens. So this will go on for years and years and years, and when it's encountered again, you get another bump, but that bump is much, much higher than the first bump. In other words, it's like two times, three times higher. And once again, much like the antibodies, it either prevents the infection from happening or leads to a much attenuated version of that infection. So this is immune memory. Okay, so next slide. Why do we study the immune system um, in, in mitochondrial disease? Well, clinically we know, and you know as parents and caregivers, that infection in general is bad for patients with mitochondrial disease. Now it's not 100%. There are some individuals who tolerate infections better than others. But it is something as clinicians and parents and caregivers that we have to keep an eye on. So from caring for these patients, we develop these two questions. So what happens to patients with mitochondrial disease during infection? And does having a mitochondrial disease actually affect the ability of your immune system to fight off infection? Okay, so next slide. So point number one, okay, so infection, this is something you learn in pediatrics very early. Infection causes increasing energy requirements. So um, if you look at fever in the Celsius scale, um, for every one degree of fever, um, the metabolic rate goes up 10% or more. So say you have a fever, so normal temperature is about 37.5 in the Celsius scale. Um, and so therefore, if you go up to say like 40 or so, that can be anywhere between a um, 20 to 30% increase um, in your basal metabolic requirements. So in other words, your, your body has to burn more energy to fight off that infection. Well, the problem is <laughs> patients need more calories to be able to do that. They don't feel like eating. That's part of it. And also, they have an underlying inability to generate energy in general because of their mitochondrial disease. The second point, so this is the next slide, slide 13, is that infection can also lead to increase in lactate production in tissues. So I'm sure many of you have experienced 
that when you, yourself or your children may have an infection, um, that their lactate levels can go up. Once again, it doesn't happen for everyone, but it does happen to certain patients and it can be dangerous. Well, this is a study that we did with mice actually, where we actually, and these are mice that don't even have mitochondrial disease, and we actually injected them on the right. You can see this, it's this, this thing called poly-IC. And what that does is it kind of tricks the body into thinking that it has a viral infection. So the immune system becomes activated and all the cells become activated and they do their jobs. And you can see what happens is if we look at the liver here, which is in the middle of the body of the mouse and surrounded in pink, the heat map shows the levels of lactate and alanine, which is kind of pretty much a surrogate for lactate. And on the right, you can see when you inject this thing, poly-IC, and simulate a viral infection, the level of tissue lactate goes up significantly. And this also happens in you know, other organs like the brain and things like that. So, so infection, so what this is telling us is that infection causes the organs to work much harder, to burn more glucose, and as a result, make more lactate. Now, you put this in the setting of a patient with mitochondrial disease, the lactate levels are probably going to be even higher. Okay, so on the, next, on the next slide, point number three, um, immune reactions, unfortunately, can actually damage mitochondria. So um, this, you can see, uh, this is our picture of the respiratory chain down here, and I'm sure you're all experts in this, and you've all seen this before, so it's basically complexes one, two, three, four, and then five is not shown, which is the five makes ATP, which is the energy for the cell. So any of these complexes can actually be damaged by immune reactions and immune cells. It's not on purpose. It's just unfortunately a byproduct of having an immune reaction in your body. Now, individuals who don't have mitochondrial disease can tolerate this quite well, but individuals who, who um, uh, have mitochondrial disease, this can be particularly detrimental. And you can see on the right, this is an enzyme assay for complexes one and three. So complexes one and three work together um, in the respiratory chain. And you can see that when you inject animals, and this is from our previous study where we looked in the liver, when you inject animals with this poly-IC, which simulates a viral infection, the abilities of complex one and three to work together is severely diminished. It gets decreased by like 80% or so. So that's normal, actually, and that's usually tolerated by animals but, and, and, and probably individuals as well. But you can think in the setting of a mitochondrial disease, knocking down something that's pretty low to begin with by 80% or maybe close to it can, pre, can be pretty detrimental to organ function. And you, you can have things like liver dysfunction or liver failure, can have problems in the brain, etc. So immune reactions, while they don't intend to be bad, in the setting of mitochondrial disease um, can be uh, deleterious to the patient. Okay. So the other thing, um, uh, so if we just switch to the next uh, slide, slide 15, is immune reactions can also damage mitochondria directly. Um, and as a result, you can actually um, release mitochondrial DNA into your blood. So this is another animal model that we use where we give them influenza infections. So we do all these things to animals to help simulate scenarios in patients with mitochondrial disease because you can imagine it's obviously dangerous to do these studies in patients. So when you give mice essentially um, an infection with influenza, you can see that mitochondrial DNA, on, on, if you look on the right, it's the left graph, mitochondrial DNA actually increases in the serum. So the cells are being damaged, mitochondria being damaged, and they're releasing mitochondrial DNA into the serum. Now, the reason this is important is because mitochondrial DNA in itself can be um, something that promotes inflammation and damage. 
So that can be particularly important for patients with mitochondrial disease. And then if we look in the liver of these animals, the amount of mitochondrial DNA actually goes down as well, which also, like our enzyme assay, shows that the mitochondria being damaged, they work less well. So these are healthy animals. This is what happens normally during an influenza infection, but once again, to reiterate, are not tolerated in patients with mitochondrial disease. Okay, so on to our next slide. Part of the way that, um, so this is slide 16 now, part of the way that immune, immune cells communicate with each other are by what, are, what I like to call text messages. So these are cytokines. So these are small little chemical messengers that you can see the two immune cells are kind of exchanging between them, the purple and the orange. They're kind of exchanging these little dots between them. And these are text messages or little peptides known as cytokines. Now, unfortunately, cytokines are damaging to mitochondrial function. On the right is a graph of um, essentially a cytokine, TNF-alpha, and we're exposing it to liver cells. And the basal and maximal respiration is basically how well your mitochondria work at their base and when you push them really hard. And when they are fed with this cytokine TNF-alpha, you can see that their ability to do their work or oxidative phosphorylation is decreased by, you know, 50% or more. So, um, these text messages um, actually are inhibitory to mitochondrial function. They are part of a normal immune reaction. They go on with exposures to viruses or bacteria, but they are damaging to mitochondria in cells. Okay, point five. So what do we see? So this is slide 17. What do we see clinically um, uh, during infection in patients with mitochondrial disease? So we see an exacerbation of neurologic events, basically. Um, so this is from Edmonds back in 2002, and this was a paper, it was a nice paper, it was about essentially upper respiratory tract infections um, in patients with mitochondrial disease, because viruses seem to be a particular problem, and, and what happens to them in terms of what neurologic events do they experience um, as a result of having these infections. So encephalopathy um, is one of them, ataxia, or kind of this wobbly movement is another, acidosis accounts for a certain amount, but SLE stands for stroke-like episodes. Um, and this is something obviously we're particularly concerned about in patients with Lee's disease and other forms of mitochondrial disease where they get these metabolic strokes. So in other words, there is death of tissue in the brain, um, which leads to an exacerbation of their neurologic symptoms, um, which persist. This is, this is brain tissue. It cannot be regenerated. And this was associated with infection, basically. So that's why we think about this problem all the time. That's why we're very concerned. That's why we encourage you to get your flu shot and all these other things, because we are concerned about the, the outcomes that um, infection can lead to. Okay, so um, there is, the next slide, there is, a, there is a strong need for translational research in mitochondrial disease. I know I'm, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. I know I don't have to convince you of that, and, and we are very much devoted to that. Um, and part of it is because, um, oh, my, okay, my slides didn't come out exactly right. But anyway, um, because of this idea of metabolic decompensation. So in other words, this is a life-threatening scenario where the patients can have um, essentially bioenergetic failure. Their mitochondria don't work well to begin with. And during infection, their mitochondria can fail. And you can have organ failure as a result, liver failure, heart failure, brain problems, strokes, things like that. You can develop lactic acidosis. Um, 
other brain processes may not work very well, strokes. And on the, on the left, you can see um, the picture behind it, by the way, is a picture of, an, of a kid in the ICU. And the idea was to show that there's a very, and, and you know this, a very high level of care that's required sometimes when these patients have these episodes of infection for simple infections that normally would not result in patients who don't have mitochondrial disease. They would not result in ICU admissions. So uh, superimposed on top of that, um, which I was going to have in a slide transition, is you can see there's, there's an MRI here of the brain. And you're looking at it essentially from the foot up as if you're slicing through the brain. And you can see that the arrows kind of indicate areas of concern or stroke. And this is in a patient with Lee's disease um, who had an infection, basically. So, so infection basically can lead to a you know, further decline in neurologic function. So the clinical question that we ask you know, is how, how did we arrive at this point? You know, are, are patients with mitochondrial disease immunodeficient? And then what is the role of inflammation in mitochondrial disease pathology? So in, in other words, immune activation, making these cytokines reacting to viruses and bacteria. You know, how is this, I told you some of the ways in which it's deleterious to mitochondria and mitochondrial function. Okay, so since infection can be really serious, you know, how well does the immune system function in patients with mitochondrial disease? Okay, so um, there are case reports kind of scattered here and there. Um, and if you talk to most neurologists, they don't really, uh, who mostly take care of these patients with mitochondrial disease, I would say a large majority of them maybe, um, um, this is somewhat under-recognized, so they don't, they don't um, know that this is going on, immune problems. So this is a patient of, of, of fatal uh, neuro, neonatal onset um, mitochondrial disease where they had problems with their T cells. So this is a mitochondrial depletion syndrome where they had, you know, multiple um, respiratory chain complexes and muscle that were down, um, and the patient had recurrent infections and wound up dying at 18 months of age um, due to septicemia. In other words, profound infection spreading in the blood to all areas of the body. Um, the patient also had low levels of immunoglobulins uh, by 15 months, so that IgG and those IgMs that help protect you against infection, those were very low. Um, the memory T cells that we talked about, the ones that are kind of waiting around for, for infections to happen so they can respond very robustly, um, were down, as well as cells that kill viruses, including CD8 T cells and NK cells. And there was a decreased response of the T cells to this thing called IL-2, which helped them um, coordinate immune responses. So really strong indicators of immune deficiency, essentially in this patient with mitochondrial disease. There's also been, on the next, on the next slide, slide 21, um, Melissa Walker, who's a wonderful neurologist um, up at Harvard, um, put together this study a couple years ago and noticed that patients with mitochondrial disease who were admitted to the ICU were actually more inflammatory than other patients in the ICU, meaning that their immune responses were more robust than, than would have been anticipated. In other words, we're much stronger. And as I mentioned before, very strong immune responses um, actually can lead to mitochondrial dysfunction and organ dysfunction, et cetera. So this was a really nice paper. She looked at about, about 90 different patients and showed that they are, they are actually hyper-inflammatory. And then also showed that they have a lot of other immune problems, like low levels of immunoglobulins, like the patient I just mentioned. Um, they get antibiotics a lot for infections, um, and they get hospitalized a lot. So this, this was a very nice paper. 
Okay. So what do we know about immune function in mitochondrial disease? Well, not much, and it's a problem that we are working on, but we know two basic principles, uh, one of which is that immune cells don't like high levels of toxins. You know, these are essentially poisons, and immune cells will die as a result. Um, the other thing is that immune cells, mitochondrial respiratory chain deficiencies, um, immune cells have mitochondria. And, and they need that energy to be able to do their job, to proliferate and make more immune cells to fight off infection. So therefore, mitochondrial respiratory chain deficiencies can present in immune organs and immune cells. Okay, so on slide 23, we're just looking at, I'm just showing, first of all, the slide I showed you before about how these immune cells, these T cells will expand, right, when they have an infection, so they're able to fight off that infection. That requires energy. So, and, and, and those cells are very sensitive to lactate. So if you look on the right-hand side, there are two graphs where you are basically giving lactic acid to uh, T cells and seeing how well they expand, they do this expansion. So with increasing amounts of lactate, you can see in the black bars that the ability of these cells to expand is greatly hindered. On the bottom, the ability of these cells to make these text messages or cytokines, which help ramp up the immune system and help kill cells, et cetera, is also hindered. So the cells cannot proliferate and they cannot do their job and communicate with each other. And this is due to lactate. On the next slide, um, this is a patient that we actually saw. So this is unpublished data. Um, and we initially saw him at, uh, when he was about 15 years of age. And this is kind of where we, we started our protocol, which I'm gonna tell you about. And he had complex three deficiency. Um, he had multisystemic disease, including neurologic findings and musculoskeletal findings, problems with his endocrine system, but he also had some immunologic findings where he had multiple infections. Um, he had uh, low levels of those immunoglobulins, the IgG, the IgM, to protect him against infection. And one of his vaccinations that he received, he lost, and actually when we revaccinated him again, he lost it again over a very short period of time. So. As I mentioned before, immune cells do have mitochondria in them. And when we took out his immune cells, his T cells, and we looked at basically his complex three, you can see in the patient, his uh, complex three activity um, is very low in his immune cells. So that started us thinking about maybe having a mitochondrial disease actually translates into having dysfunctional immune cells because they contain mitochondria and they rely on having a lot of energy. So going to the next slide, the clinical features of mitochondrial disease, you know, you have all these things that we know with the nervous system and the heart and whatever, but there's kind of this emerging idea that the immune system can actually be affected. Um, and the immune system is a high energy um, system like any other. Um, and the problem and the reason we want to study this is really, as I mentioned, because of a lot of the complications um, that can happen um, during infection where um, level of activity decreases significantly. Okay, um, this is slide 26. So um, we did a study looking at patients with um, mitochondrial disease where we did a chart review. So this is 62 pediatric patients um, with mitochondrial disease. And we reviewed kind of the different immune um, uh, aspects of their disease. And what we found is that, you know, about 85% or more have, have recurrent or severe infections. 
Now, any immunologist that would like kind of set off a flag, any clinical immunologist that like, oh, this is something that's, you know, serious. I mean, having repeated infections, something to look into. It turns out that the majority of those infections are either upper respiratory tract infections or lower respiratory tract infections, um, which is on the graph, upper RTI or lower RTI. Otitis media or earaches also kind of falls into that category. So these are essentially, and most of these are viruses. So these are mostly upper respiratory tract infections, which are, which are basically recurring over and over again in these patients. Um, they also have other types of infections. Um, and some patients, because of the immune uh, problems that they're presenting with, are on IgG therapy, so immunoglobulin therapy, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. And that's like about 22% of, of that population that we looked at. Okay. Um, we also did some similar work where we were screening the patients. This is slide 27, where we were screening the patients more specifically, um, not just doing a chart review, but asking very direct questions about their immune function. So this is based off a questionnaire from the Jeffrey Modell Foundation. And this basically is a questionnaire that's used by primary care physicians to assess immune function. So we asked about things like ear aches and sinus infections and pneumonia and things like that. So um, the top thing that we saw in patients, which I'm sure many of you can testify to, is delayed recovery. So it takes patients with mitochondrial disease a long time to recover from infection, and that's kind of our middle red arrow here. Um, some of the patients did have a past history of, of, of immune dysfunction, which is the arrow next arrow to the right, um, and some of them even have an immunologic evaluation. Um, and then we also asked about um, anti antibiotic prophylaxis, which is the last bar. So that's up to about 35% of individuals actually receive antibiotic prophylaxis, in other words, to prevent an infection from occurring. And then once again, in, in this other cohort that we looked at, the use of immunoglobulin therapy, which is the last red arrow on the right, um, is almost 20% in, in the people that we surveyed over the phone who were, who were coming to see us. Um, so, so immunoglobulin is being used out there and is something that we're looking to address. Okay, so on slide 28, um, patients with mitochondrial disease uh, may have poor immune memory. So I told you before about those memory T cells that are important for, you know, they're poised and they're ready for when infection comes around the next time. And you can see here in our graph, this is looking at memory T cells, and the dashed lines indicate the normal range for these individuals. And the different colors are different types of mitochondrial disease. The basic message is that patients with mitochondrial disease may have poor immune memory. In other words, their ability to have a robust immune response because they've been vaccinated or because they've you know, seen that infection before seems to be, very, seems to be severely compromised. Okay, uh, on slide 29, immunization. So in patients with mitochondrial disease, at this point, um, immunization is, and, and we are in support of immunization for patients, um, but we have to do some more work to see you know, how effective these immunizations are um, and whether individuals are maintaining their titers. Um, so far, the data suggests that immunization is safe. I know there are probably um, individual stories out there, but at least when looked at a database by Kaiser Permanente in California and mitochondrial disease patients were part of that, there did not seem to be increased episodes of um, deterioration after having immunizations. 
Okay, so on slide 30, you can see this is the immunization schedule, and I kind of jokingly said before that it seems to be expanding every year. Um, but here are all the immunizations that, that up till the, now in 2018 that uh, children are, have to receive. Um, and a lot of it has to do with school entry, et cetera. So I'm sure you're all intimately familiar with this, um, and there are, they do occur in a number of doses spread across um, certain time periods. So we looked at, essentially, this is slide 31, so we looked at essentially vaccination um, in our patients with mitochondrial disease, and this is through the mini-study, which I'll tell you about. So we looked at MMR and we looked at varicella, um, and the reason we looked at this is because, unfortunately, in this country now, um, there are individuals who do not vaccinate their children, which put patients with mitochondrial disease at risk um, for contracting these diseases. I do not wish to see measles, mumps, rubella, or varicella in any patient with mitochondrial disease because I don't even want to anticipate what the problems will be. Um, so on the left are the vaccination rates for, these are, this is about, I think it's about 25 patients that we looked at um, with mitochondrial disease and the large majority of them um, completed their vaccination schedule for MMR. Uh, about 92%, with the remaining 8% um, having uh, only one course uh, yet, and they were late on their other one by the time they visited us. So, so that's good. It's a pretty good high rate of, uh, of vaccination. Same is true for varicella, um, varicella, which causes chickenpox, um, fairly high rate of, of vaccination, 84%, with about 16% having incomplete, um, an incomplete course, meaning they didn't receive the, the, the proper number. Okay, so when we looked at antibodies against MMR, we found that mumps and rubella were actually okay, so I'm not going to show you that data here, but I'm showing you data for measles. So uh, the control uh, tells us basically what is, if you look in a population of healthy individuals, how many of them should be positive for having antibodies against measles? And it's about 90% or more. So we took a very conservative estimate based on the literature, 90% or more. Patients with mitochondrial disease are about 78%. So through the mini-study, this is one of the things we look at, and we often do revaccination in our, in our kids as a result, or we recommend revaccination. Now, why is this important? Well, this is data on the right from the CDC. There have been outbreaks of measles across the United States. So if you remember back in 2014, um, there was a big incident that happened at Disneyland in California um, where um, unvaccinated individuals actually wound up spreading measles cases. So there were 667 um, in 2014. So, and this is due to you know, reduced rates of children vaccinating their kids. Um, as of t this figure for 2018 is from a couple of months ago. So we've already had in 2018 at least 63 cases of measles, probably more. And um, this is something that we're very interested in because we want kids with mitochondrial disease and adults to be protected against these communicable diseases. The next slide, which is slide 33, is varicella, which is much more shocking to us because our patients seem to be very low in varicella in, in terms of having those protective antibodies against varicella. So normal in um, people who don't have mitochondrial disease, basically the rate of having protective antibodies against varicella, once again, is about 90% or more, similar to measles. It turns out patients with mitochondrial disease are about 45% or so. So um, varicella can cause not only skin, um, you know, the skin rash that we're all, some of us may be familiar with, um, but it can cause all sorts of other problems that are associated like pneumonia and, you know, other problems which can be detrimental in mitochondrial disease. Okay, so 
we're now on slide 34. This is just, remember before, this was the slide um, that I showed you earlier about these antibodies in the blood and how they protect you against infection. So this is, this is just a reminder moving forward. So I mentioned before about some of our patients um, are on immunoglobulin therapy. So in other words, they've been to an immunologist or maybe it's their neurologist who gives it to them, who, who are giving them immunoglobulin therapy, most of which seem to be for infectious reasons, in other words, to help them be more healthy. Um, so I'm going to ask this kind of general question. I know you can't respond to me, but I want you to think about it. <laughs> um, how many of you out there um, have have problems with infection or take care of individuals who have problems with infection? And how many individuals are on IVIG? And, and we would really like to hear from you. At the end of, at the, end of the you know, um, um, presentation, there'll be some links to how to get in touch with us. But we really want to know about these things because IVIG is begin, being given to patients now to help them with infection. And we're starting to study how beneficial this is. So what is IVIG? It's, it's essentially immunoglobulins, right? Those things that help, those small proteins that help protect you against infection. And IVIG stands for intravenous immune globulin. It's also known as antibodies. So this is actually made from human plasma. They take anywhere between 10 to 100 individuals and take blood from them, right? And then extract the plasma and then get antibodies from it. So... Um, these are used normally for immune-mediated conditions to try and help calm down the immune system, or sometimes they're used in infectious scenarios. Patients who are immunodeficient, um, who have low levels of immunoglobulins, they will give IVIG. Um, and it's kind of a big black box. We're not quite sure exactly how it works. We, we know that um, we have some idea of how it works, but there, there's a lot more we don't understand about how IVIG works. And you know, this speaks to our question of do patients um, with mitochondrial disease is, you know, is part of their pathology or the pathophysiology, does it have immune involvement? And is the reason that they're responding or doing well on IVIG is because their immune system is being kind of calmed down by that IVIG. So we're exploring that in the lab and in our patients. Okay. So um, now let's talk about the cells themselves. In other words, how do immune cells, you know, use mitochondria and having problems with your mitochondria, does that lead to a problem with your immune cells? Well, so this is an eight-year-old patient um, that we have followed who has mitochondrial disease, and this was in conjunction with um, Susan Pacheco and um, Mary Kay Koenig at UT um, Health in Texas. Um, and this patient, when they got a fever, up top, you can see that they were hospitalized with fever. And during that episode of having fever, the red line indicates their lactate. Their lactate bumped up um, pretty high, um, indicating that they were having this kind of decompensation episode. And what normally happens during infection, as I mentioned earlier, is that your white cells, you make more of them. They expand to fight off infection. Well, in this particular patient, the white cells don't expand. They actually go down. Um, and that correlated with the lactate peak that we saw. Um, and then as the individual got better, the white cells came back up again. So this individual became what's called leukopenic. In other words, low levels of white blood cells. That's the exact opposite of what you want to do in an infection. You want to have those, those, those white cells go up to help you fight infection. On the next slide, slide 39, also the immunoglobulin levels fell as well. So you want your immunoglobulin levels, your IgG, to be very high to be able to fight off infection. This individual actually decreased their level of immunoglobulin. So in other words, the immune system is doing the exact opposite of what you would want it to do, and we think it has to do with dysfunctional mitochondria. 
Okay, so on slide 40, I have to, I'm going to talk just a little bit about mice. I apologize, but it helps us learn about um, it, it allows us to do things that obviously we can't do with patients because they're very dangerous. So we made a mouse model where we made essentially Cox deficiency or complex 4 deficiency in T cells only. So this mouse does not have whole body mitochondrial disease. It only has mitochondrial disease in its T cells. So we wanted to see how does that affect those T cells and their ability to function. So um, the mice are generally healthy. On slide 41, you can see that when we look at um, just to make sure that our model did what it's supposed to do. In the upper left-hand corner, we look at Cox activity. In other words, the, the, the function we are trying to knock out in our T cells and our animals, which we call T-Cox-10 animals, in other words, T cell Cox deficiency, um, have very low Cox activity. So that was good. And then we look at, when we look down in the right-hand corner, OxFos, or the ability of the respiratory chain to work as a whole, that was also greatly diminished. Okay, so that's great. We've made a mouse model. They have mitochondrial dysfunction in their T cells. Now let's see how well do they recapitulate what we see in patients with mitochondrial disease. Well, first things first, when you look at the white blood cell counts, so across the top at baseline, you do nothing to these animals. You leave them alone. Their white blood cells look okay. So white blood cells can be divided into lymphocytes and, and, and all different types of lymphocytes, et cetera. So the lymphocytes look okay. The lymphocytes are T cells and B cells. Those look okay. But when we stress the animals, we give them an infection, right? So the immune cells have to be mounted. The T cells and B cells have to expand. They have to fight off that infection. The lymphocytes actually go down. That's the exact opposite of what you would want in an infection. So this was recapitulating. On the right, you can remember that graph I showed you of our patient who dropped the blue line, who dropped his white blood cell counts during his infection. Um, the mouse is doing the exact same thing. Okay, on slide 43, once again, reminding about how the immune system protects us with IgM and IgG and this kind of memory response. So how about if we vaccinate our mice? What does that look like? So um, we take the mice and we vaccinate them against um, this small protein. So you can see uh, here on day zero, we give them that vaccination. Then on day 14, we take some blood and we look at the primary immune response, right? The first small hump that we see in our immune response in IgG. And you can see that on the bottom left at two weeks, the primary immune reaction in our TCOX10 animals, the IgG is very, very low. Okay, it's almost near the level of blank. In other words, if you put water in there and has your what we call a negative control, so it shows essentially nothing. Okay, well let's look at five weeks out. So if on our top graph, if you go to five weeks out and you immunize the mice again, right? You see they're getting injected, and then at 35 days you draw blood again, and what you're expecting is a lot of antibodies, right? This is the secondary immune response, the secondary challenge. Um, what you can see at the bottom at five weeks, our secondary immune response also is greatly diminished. Um, so this correlates with what we're seeing in our patients. They lose their, they either don't develop antibodies against the vaccines that they get, or they do develop minimal amounts and they lose them over time. Okay. Uh, on slide 45, um, once again, just reminding you about our, our T cells, our CD8 T cells and our CD4 T cells. They have to respond in response to infection, right? 
then they go into then the infection goes away and then they go into this this mode of memory where they are waiting for that infection to show up again so they can fight right away expand to a much greater degree right away and prevent that infection from happening so we can do that in our mice um, using influenza. So this is slide 46 where we take mice, our, our TCOX10 mice, so the mice that have mitochondrial deficiency in their T-cells. T-cells are critical for fighting off influenza. What we do, the way the experiment works, is you vaccinate them against influenza. Then, one month later, right, when the memory response should have formed, you then challenge them with influenza. So you put them in a little machine, they are given aerosolized, uh, influenza, much like if you've ever seen asthmatics get a nebulizer. So they breathe it in and they essentially get a viral pneumonia. Now you can see in the graph on the left, the bar graph, the wild type animal, when you immunize it against influenza and then you challenge it with live influenza a month later and you look in their lungs, they have no influenza. So in other words, the T cells, the memory T cells were able to form and they were able to prevent that infection from taking hold. So they have no influenza, they are protected. The animals with mitochondrial disease and their T cells are not protected. So in other words, they have very high levels of influenza in their lungs. And this is kind of what we hear with patients is that when they get infected, it takes them a while to clear their infections and their infections are severe. Okay. So slide 47, we're wrapping up in just a few minutes. Um, this is a summary. So the immune system is important for vaccination and protection against infection. And infection, I'm sure as you all know, uh, may be detrimental in patients with mitochondrial disease and really lead to serious decline in their level of functioning. And there are subsets of patients with mitochondrial disease. I'm not saying all of you have it, but some patients have immune dysfunction, and this may be due to toxicity from lactate or the fact that their immune cells require a lot of energy and their mitochondria don't work very well on their immune cells. Okay, so I'm going to tell you just for the next like two minutes um, about the, the mini-study. Um, so it stands for, this is a longitudinal study, so it goes on for, you know, we don't have an end date, we're still going and we will continue to go, where we're looking at um, a, it's the natural history of immunity in patients with mitochondrial disease. And MINI stands for Metabolism, Infection, and Immunity in Inborn Errors of Metabolism. We have a specific interest in patients with mitochondrial disease. And this is a, a joint effort between my own institute, the National Human Genome Research Institute, and the NIH Clinical Center, as well as the CDC and um, something called the CHI at NIH, which helps look at immune function in patients with, with all different types of problems. So our goal really is to help mitigate the risk um, of infection in patients with mitochondrial disease. So it's, it's to identify immune susceptibilities and risks, in other words, like having low immunoglobulins or something, in patients with mitochondrial disease. And the idea is to, protect, to, to offer them protection and offer them guidance. But it's also to characterize organ systems which may be susceptible to dysfunction or damage um, during infection with mitochondrial disease. Okay, on slide 49, this is actually a picture of the NIH Clinical Center. We are here in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, and this is a government institution, so I would like to thank you all um, for paying your taxes because that's, this is where part of your taxes go. This is a research hospital where any individual who comes here is being investigated specifically on a research protocol, and they are not charged for their visit for the medical care that they are 
you know, they are provided. Also, travel to the NIH and lodging and meals are also provided. So I would like, first of all like to say thank you very much. Um, there have been many individuals who have participated so far. We've now seen over 65 individuals with mitochondrial disease. We're trying to recruit more, and I'm very thankful and consider myself privileged to be able to work with these families. Um, the Children's Inn is one of the hotels we have on campus um, where individuals can stay um, and then visit us on an outpatient basis. So we, we utilize the Children's Inn. It's, very, it's, a, it's a really nice place. It's very child-friendly. Um, they have a lot of activities going on there um, uh, for the kids when they stay on the NIH campus. Um, so what are we kind of seeing overall and what, what types of things are we interested in in patients with mitochondrial disease? Well, they kind of fall into four categories. So the first category is um, individu certain individuals with mitochondrial disease have a frank immunodeficiency by any definition. So in other words, if they went to an immunologist, they would be identified as primary immunodeficiency. We also have another, an, uh, another couple of individuals who have these hyperinflammatory diseases where you know, their immune system overreacts to certain things and it makes them very sick and it's life-threatening. And these individuals sometimes receive Im immune globulin, like I said, IVIG, or even biologics like kinerit. I mean, these are things that block um, certain parts of the immune response, which are for the inflammatory conditions. Um, then the next uh, set of individuals are individuals we've seen who have immune dysfunction. So they may, you know, um, um, they don't fall in the, in the um, definitions of primary immunodeficiency or these classical inflammatory diseases or anything like that. They have problems with things like their titers. So in other words, they are vaccinated against MMR and they're missing their measles, like I showed you before, or they're missing their varicella, like I showed you before. So we help identify these individuals, we help revaccinate them to make sure that they're protected against these things. A large proportion of what we see is this stress-induced immune dysfunction. So if you remember, I showed you before that our patient, when, the, when he got infected, and he's one of several that we've seen, um, drops his white blood cell count and drops his levels of immunoglobulins when he gets sick. So this is what we term kind of the stress-induced immune dysfunction. The immune system doesn't do exactly what it should be doing. And then, of course, there are individuals who are healthy and, and, and in, with regards to their immune function and don't really seem to have any problems. And the reason we kind of categorize them like this is you can see on the bottom, your risk of metabolic decompensation or having one of these really severe life-threatening episodes in mitochondrial disease increases as you kind of have this increasing immune dysfunction. So our last slide, this is uh, our contact information. That's uh, my picture. And um, Eliza Gordon-Lipkin uh, just joined us recently. She's a pediatric neurologist and neurodevelopmental specialist who joined us from Johns Hopkins. Um, so she helps us in seeing the patients um, and is part of the team. Um, Shannon, some of you may know, um, is uh, the research coordinator, um, the research nurse for, um, for the study. So she talks to you and helps collect records to, to, you know, to help you enter the study. And this is our telephone number, and this is our website, and the email is monitored all the time, so please feel free to use it and contact us. Thank you very much, and I'll take some questions. Yeah, that was so awesome, Dr. McGuire. Thank you so much. The more you went on and delved into the immune system, the more I realized how much we needed this discussion. So, I love your <laughs> Well, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad. You and I speak that same analogy lingo because I think it brings it to life, and I even remember in college and 
graduate school studying through analogies because it just works for me. So you and I are on the same page. I love the car one especially. So thank oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I used to, by the way, I used to teach high school. That's, that's where it comes oh, from. Oh, that's it, yes. Um, I mean, sometimes it just even brings a little humor to a discussion. But <laughs> yes. Especially if someone's a little worried that this topic is too scientific. And you're like, yeah, I get it now. Yeah, texting, I got that. So I just thank you so much. I do have some questions if you have a few minutes. Yes, absolutely. I have, have ever much time you need. Oh, perfect. Um, how about this one? A person writes that their primary symptom is a metabolic myopathy. And yes. she has found that the most effective way to keep perfect functionality or her best functionality is gentle aerobic exercise. So if yeah. she takes a break from this exercise, even for a few days, she feels the metabolic myopathy and general energy level get noticeably worse. But when she has a virus, it seems that if she does exercise, it's even harder for her to shake it off, and serious yeah. complications can arise the longer it sticks around. Yeah. Do you have any advice in keeping that balance? And since you, I think the key slide was how much energy a one-degree you know, temperature rise can have that you're really diverting energy. Right, right. So part, right. So, so part of that would be the, part of that answer would be in that slide, right? So, so I guess the first part, of course, is flu season is coming up. Please get your flu vaccination. Um, the second part of it is exactly what you alluded to from that slide. It's you have to try and match energy intake, right? So, and that can be hard sometimes because when we're sick, we feel miserable. And, and, and also, too, if we're having like vomiting and things like that, it's hard sometimes to maintain intake. So, you know, having, having things like, you know, um, things like apple juice and things that contain essentially a lot of calories, you're trying to basically meet, you know, a system which is supposed to be working above, you know, what it normally should be working. Now, in patients with mitochondrial disease, we don't know yet because we, you can imagine it's hard to catch people in the middle of their illness and measure what their, you know, having a, having a mitochondrial disease, what their energy requirements look like, um, meaning does it actually bump up like, like individuals who don't. But the only thing, at least in the meantime, we can offer is to try and increase your calorie intake to try and provide that energy. And it should be so, – so when you have a broken mitochondria, what fuels do you prefer? Sugar, basically. So sugar, so things like apple juice and things like that would be probably more helpful in trying to maintain that energy balance. Correct. So she needs to keep in mind energy in, energy out, but that exactly. the fact that she has a virus is increasing her energy, so she can't, you know, meet that demand. She may exactly. have to stop the exercise during that time when she's most ill. Yeah, and and exactly. I mean, she's it, it's it's definitely going to reduce her ability to do exercise, and really should be concentrating on the illness itself and trying to keep up calorically, as you pointed out. Okay, perfect. Okay, I have another question, and this is a little bit uh, different vein of immunology. Yeah. But uh, a caller is wondering if your discussion could be why he or she. I'm not sure doesn't have antibodies when his blood was tested for allergies. Does it make us less susceptible for autoimmune diseases if we also have MITO? Well, so that's a, that's a tough question. So, okay, so let's take a step back because I think everyone realizes that when we talk about MITO, we're really talking about probably, uh, I don't want to say hundreds, but many different diseases. 
and not all of them will behave the same. The underlying idea, of course, is oxfos dysfunction and the ability, the lack of the ability to produce energy. But um, I can envision scenarios like the question the questioner is asking, where um, yeah, they may not develop antibodies to allergy testing because of a mitochondrial deficiency. And we've seen similar patients like that. But I've also seen patients on the other end of the spectrum who actually do have autoimmune disease. So we, we have seen patients coming in who have, um, we have a patient who actually um, has a mitochondrial disease and multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disease. Um, we have a patient that we've seen who has a mitochondrial disease and um, um, uh, hyperinflammatory syndrome. So it kind of goes in both, it goes a little bit in both directions. And part of it has to do with how the immune system operates. So in other words, memory, immune memory, which I talked about before, highly reliant on mitochondrial function, right? Inflammation, highly reliant on glucose and not mitochondrial function. So you can imagine a scenario where an individual with mitochondrial disease could be more hyperinflammatory, but could also not develop antibodies to things because of how the fuels are used in a person with mitochondrial disease. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me, and it is complex. That's yes, that's the, that's the basic answer. But we do see it. We do see ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I can pull the same you know, type of examples. I know many callers who have autoimmune diseases, and of yeah. course there's many, many who do not as well. So right. Very tricky. Um, about, uh, let's see, some people are told... Um, in the winter months with the cold and flu, to yes. just go into isolation. No germ exposure whatsoever. So yeah. they're wondering what your feel on some exposure to sort of work out, you know, give your immune system a workout, you know, the use it or lose it theory, versus total isolation, you know, building up some of that immunity versus let's sort of be a bubble in our own house all winter long, which can be long, especially in the Northeast. Sure, sure. So I, I don't know if I have a direct answer for that. It really kind of depends on your past experience, right? So in other words, if you are an individual who um, has had a really rough time with infection, you know, in the past where, you know, I, I've, I've had patients who were down for multiple weeks for very simple, you know, upper respiratory tract infections. Um, and they do avoid, you know, in general, avoid, um, you know, uh, they they try and stay away from people during the winter. Um, so it really so my first point is it really kind of depends on what your previous experience has been with that. Um, my second point that I can make is that if you if you have to go out or you choose to go out, um, how are most of these things actually contracted? Well, it actually has to do with the things we touch, um, right? So doorknobs, um, sharing things like utensils, etc. So believe it or not, hand washing can be quite um, effective in helping prevent that. So, um, you know, and, and also encouraging, obviously encouraging people to, you know, cover themselves when they cough, et cetera. Um, so, you know, it's, I, I don't exactly have an answer because it really depends on the person's ex previous experience, but if they are choosing to go out and do that, um, hygiene is going to be the best way to help protect them. I, I agree, and those people will have to sort of weigh a little bit about social isolation for a long yes. cold winter. No, of course. You know, maybe, you know, it's, you have to consider, I guess, your mental health as well. I, I would go a little bonkers, but I know people who do it, and good for them. 
Um, yeah. About herd immunity, I'm hearing yes. more people as they, you know, worry about vaccination say, well, I'm just going with herd immunity. Maybe you'd like to just explain maybe what that is and maybe yeah. any pitfalls or or positives about herd yeah, immunity. Yeah, well, the main, the main pitfall now is it's falling. Um, so what herd immunity refers to, and it, it does actually originally come from animals um, and cows and things like that, um, is, is basically there has to be a certain percentage of the population to be immunized and protected against that particular, you know, say measles, for instance, to prevent outbreaks from happening, right? So that number is about 80% or so. Um, it depends on the vaccination, but let, let's just say for argument's sake, it's about 80%. Um, unfortunately, what has happened in, in this country now for various reasons um, is that individuals are not vaccinating their children. Um, and so therefore, herd immunity has actually dropped. So what that means now is that there are increased risks, increased risks for outbreaks. And there have been outbreaks. There have been outbreaks. I mentioned the one in Disneyland in California, uh, or, or resulting from that Disneyland visit in California in 2014. Um, there have been populations in Minnesota um, that also there have been, I mean, more or less in almost every single state, but obviously the states that are more populous, you see these things much more prominently. Um, so, so that's what herd immunity is. And unfortunately, it is waning in our population and therefore, unfortunately, puts patients um, with mitochondrial disease at risk for contracting really what are vaccine preventable diseases. Correct. Okay. Thank you for that explanation. And I do think that you you hit on it that it can work, but it's starting to fail as a you know yeah. safe alternative. Well, it's it's because people are choosing not to have it done. That's that's why. In other words, healthy individuals are choosing not to have it done. And I'm I, so let so just just a, one quick follow up point about that. Measles carries a one in one thousand risk of having in a. In a in an individual who doesn't have mitochondrial disease, a one in 1,000 risk of having a horrible brain disease, right, as a result of having measles. That's, that's really bad. Now, as I said before and reiterated several times, I don't want to see what that looks like in mitochondrial disease. I don't, the two are not compatible. So therefore, you know, make sure the siblings get vaccinated. Make sure to avoid, you know, I would generally stay away from families that don't vaccinate their kids. It's not a good idea. Yes, it's a good, definitely a good point. Um, well, let me move in to another question, if you have yes. time. I have a couple more. If immune reactions can damage the mitochondria, how do yeah. we know that immune reactions or response that vaccines are intended to produce are not harmful for mitopatients? Is there a way to pre-screen yeah. even so prior? So, so they're, they're the way. So, the, the types of immune reactions that you have with a vaccination are very different than the kinds that you have with a um, a virus or some type of you know pathogen. So, um, what what happens when you so say for instance the MMR or something like that, that essentially produces a localized immune reaction in the muscle of your arm, right? So we all get our shot in the arm, um, where the immune cells go there and they learn about essentially what these, um, you know, what these small inactivated viruses are, how to react to them and how to recognize them second time around. So that produces essentially some pain in the area. Um, some people may feel a little under the weather. It, that is significantly different than an actual infection, right? So in other words, that 
that, that um, inactivated virus or, or whatever that's being injected into your arm doesn't replicate, right? So it doesn't spread. It doesn't cause um, profound systemic changes to your immune system. So the two are really, you know, kind of um, um, different ends of the spectrum in terms of how the immune system responds to them. Whereas, you know, infection is much more robust. Correct. Right. And I had a flu shot yesterday, so I just have that very mild, you know, right. tenderness and um, hoping that it'll, it'll do the trick because, um, you know, I don't want to also infect anyone in my household or in my community. So. Right, exactly. All right. Well, we have a few more on this vein, which I know is okay. can be a, a tricky area. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you're, you're taking some of these tough questions. For stress-induced immune dysfunction, can the yes. act of vaccination alone cause stress, i.e. if it causes a fever, that can further cause yeah. immune dysfunction? So, so uh, I alluded earlier before to um, that study that was done in, by Kaiser Permanente in California. Um, so so I, I'm sure there are stories out there of this happening to individuals. Um, but in general, when you look at a large data set of individuals, of thousands of people, you know, in the Kaiser Permanente health system, um, and they looked at different, all different types of inborn errors of metabolism, of which mitochondrial disease were part of that. Um, they did, actually did not find an increased rate of um, kind of these, you know, decompensation episodes or getting sick um, after being vaccinated. So at least the data, as I said, I'm not trying to discount in any way some individual stories that, in, that people may have, but the data as a whole don't, actually don't support that. Okay. Looking at numbers is, you know, the good way to, to help sort things out when people are very close to it. Um, exactly. Final question. Uh, many multi-dose vials of flu vaccination still contain mercury as a preservative. Knowing that mercury is a known mitochondrial toxin, whole body toxin for that matter. Couldn't this toxin cause more harm than good? Should individuals request mercury-free flu shots, especially if pregnant? Right. So um, this is a question that comes up all the time and, and, and comes up also in the autism community. Um, so the, the one point I will make about mercury is the mercury that is so the re, so why is it in there? That's the that's the first question. It's actually in there as a preservative um, because multi-dose um, uh, sometimes multi-dose vials um, will contain some type of preservative. Um, so then that's one thing. But the second thing is really to draw the distinction between ethyl mercury and methyl mercury. Right. So mercury, this all grew out of the idea, not the idea, but the documented um, uh, issues with methylmercury poisoning. Right. So methylmercury poisoning can occur from a variety of sources like eating contaminated fish and things like that, which cause severe neurodevelopmental problems, um, which are probably related to mitochondrial toxicity. So I completely agree with that. Um, the preservative that was used in in, um, in vaccines is ethylmercury. That's a completely different beast. It is not methylmercury. It is actually taken in by the body and actually um, excreted by the kidneys. 
So they really are two drastically different chemicals. Um, I mean, the amounts are, are very low, um, and it is not the mitochondrial toxin that ethyl mercury, uh, sorry, that methyl mercury is. So one begins with an M, one begins with an E, methyl mercury versus ethyl mercury. Methyl mercury is the bad one. That's the one that's associated with mitochondrial toxicity. Ethyl mercury is um, in small amounts and actually is normally excreted by the body. Okay. That's, I did not know that. Thank you for clearing that up. Sure. Um, I do have two last-minute questions coming in. Yeah, no problem. I totally respect your time. No, of course. Okay. Uh, let me get to this one. If you individually experience that you get quite sick, obviously them, with flu-like symptoms after a flu shot, would you still recommend that the person gets the flu shot? And I think I know the answer to this, but I'm handing it over to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that that is one of those cases. I mean, I, I don't know exactly the degree of which they get sick and what their recovery looks like and whether they've been hot. I mean, there's a lot that figures into that equation, right? So in other words, I mean, are we talking about winding up in the hospital and the ICU and, you know, um, so, so once again, it's, 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 it's risk-benefit, as is anything. So it's, address, it's really thinking about how much disability results from what's been your past experience, obviously since they've had some um, from receiving the flu shot. Um, the, the other argument to that, too, is the flu is much worse. Um, so that's the risk-benefit. Is it, is it, um, it's addressing whether um, actually having that flu shot at that time, if it does cause such profound disability in you and actually deterioration in your level of functioning where you do not make your way back up to your normal level of functioning, then, yeah, obviously that makes sense. Um, but, you know, if, if you do actually have a recovery, it just takes you a little bit longer um, and you don't have complications, then I think it's, it's, it's the risk-benefit and probably a risk worth taking. Okay, thank you. That clears it up, I think, for many people. Okay, the final question I have, uh, a, a person right there. Sorry, can I just say one more thing before that? Oh, absolutely, sure. Some providers do it in a hospital setting. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you have had trouble in the past, um, you know, the, I have, I've done it before when I was working in practice up in New York. Um, some people do it in a hospital setting so that they, can, they can monitor the individual closely. Okay. That's good to know. All right, the final question. A uh, person writes in that they have five autoimmune diseases and a son with mito. Should I still get or should she still get the flu shot even though she's gotten both flu types the past two years and last year I had both twice? Right. So what she's saying is the efficacy for those past couple years was reduced for her. So she actually got, he or she, sorry, got the flu. Correct. And we know that. that that's correct. Yeah. I mean, the flu shot yeah, is so it's, perfect. Now, yeah. So. So it's so so exactly. I mean, every year, um, what happens is many months before the flu shot's actually released, um, the World Health Organization and the CDC and various organizations get together, and what they have to do is they have to predict what strains are going to be circulating for the coming year. Um, sometimes they're dead on, you know, and they and they get it right, and the vaccine is really good. Sometimes sometimes they're not and they they you know and that's just you know that's just the nature of prediction the other thing that could happen as well is and the reason that you have to get vaccinated for the flu every year is because the the virus mutates so in other words the virus is under selective pressure in the environment where it actually changes its form that basically makes it not recognizable by the immune system 
you know, for the vaccination that you've given, essentially. So, um, so you know, it's I wouldn't use past history as as necessarily an indicator of whether or not to get the flu shot. Um, if you have an in, a child with mitochondrial disease, um, it would be recommended for, you know, related individuals and individuals who are around that person um, to get vaccinated to prevent spread. The other thing, too, is also some patients also have um, uh, um, antivirals on hand um, if their child is exposed. Correct. Well, Dr. McGuire, I really would love to thank you again for your time, your expertise, your passion really shines through. And I know it's not always easy to present to a muted, silent audience. <laughs> I know. No well, they can, they can get in touch with me. <laughs> Absolutely. We'd love to hear from them. All right, perfect. And we will keep those slides up so that people will know how to contact you. And uh, hopefully we can add to your body of work to help future generations. That's great. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you again, and thank you all for calling in. Yes, thank you, everyone. I appreciate it. Have a good day.